Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite someone to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see where the poem and the conversation turn. Then we'll also have a little bit of silliness and a poetry game later because I can't help myself. On today's episode, I'm absolutely delighted to have on John Cullen. John is a comedian, Canadian, curler, and caster, comma, pod. He's the co-host of the podcast Block Party, which is one of my favorites, and the POD cast. And you can listen to his comedy albums, Long Stories for No Reason from 2020, and most likely to be a comedian from 2017. And if you're a teacher or have ever taught, you'll especially enjoy most likely to be a comedian. John, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. This is this is going to be an interesting change from Blocked Party. Yeah, I was I was thinking of saying something like, I don't know what the crossover is for Block Party fans and fans of this podcast. Yeah, all of our fans are really stupid. So they might so they might be like, although you're a fan, so I'm pretty stupid. I, I well, this is the thing. I mean, you're a professor at Cornell. I feel like you can't be that stupid. Uh well, they lowered their standards, you know. It's uh they've they've increased enrollments, they just need more faculty. I will say if you're someone who listens and you turn it off when we get to the stupidity, then block party is not for you. If you stick yes. with it, it is probably it's much more likely it'll be for you. I didn't mention this in the intro, but you're also a substitute teacher. Yeah. And most American listeners, as you know, that means nothing. I substitute taught for like four days after college and all I needed was a criminal background check and a negative TB test. Can you explain what you yeah. had to do to become a substitute teacher in Canada. Yeah, Canada is totally different. So it is funny because, uh, yeah, Americans do, like you said, treat substitute teaching like it is working at McDonald's, basically. <laughs> so yeah, in Canada, uh, in order to be a substitute teacher, you have to have a teaching degree. So there's two different ways you can get that. One is to do pardon me, your typical like bachelor's degree first, whether that's of arts or science or fine arts or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and then you do a full, usually it's a one-year program. Some schools it's two, but you get a bachelor of education. So I actually have two degrees, um, a bachelor of arts in English literature and then uh, and then my B.Ed. And yeah, and then some schools do offer just a bachelor of education. And it's like a five-year program where sort of your BA or BSC or whatever is tied in with your education degree. So you're kind of learning all the stuff, but from a sort of teaching perspective, the entire time that you're doing your degree, instead of just like one year of hard concentration on it at the end. But yeah, you can't be a teacher uh, in Canada without that. And that includes substitute teaching. And a fun fact that a lot of Americans like to learn and this is not true of every school district, but the school district that I just left that I taught in for 13 years. Uh, I got paid the same as a regular teacher. So oh, wow. um, the way they do it is basically they they say the school year is 180 days. So every day I would make one 180th of a of a teacher's salary with my commensurate experience. And I also accrued seniority. So I worked my way up the pay ladder and uh, accrued pension as well. So when you're a sub, you're actually like a true real teacher. You're just not in any one place for any length of time. That's incredible. I have a PhD. And if I wanted to teach K through 12, I would have to go back and do all these certifications, maybe get another <laughs> degree. And and yet on the opposite end of the spectrum, I can be the sort of prison guard who sits in the class and has no power if I'm a substitute teacher. Yeah, exactly. So, 
so, all right. Today you've brought in one of the hits, Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop for Death. Any preface before I ask you to read it aloud? Yeah. Is this like, uh, does this, does it make me lame to pick this one? I, I feel like I was a little concerned because I, I'm not super up on my modern poetry and I feel like I'm guessing a lot of your guests want to seem like hip and cool and be like, oh, this is this modern poet you've never heard of. And I'm going to read one of their brilliant poems. And I'm like, hey, here's one of the all time classics. <laughs> I feel <laughs> like I'm going to get judged by your listeners. No, not for that. You won't get judged for that. I feel like <laughs> okay. so like sometimes it's been a poet I haven't heard of. And a couple times it's been, oh, I know this poet, but I don't know this poem. And then a couple times it's like, oh, Anne Sexton. Yeah, I've I read this poem in college and have reread it since. So it, it varies. There's no this isn't about poetry. There is no cool factor. Well, that's I guess that is true at the end of the day. I just, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of seem like a literary hipster and uh i but i'm not but i'm not and i can't and i can't fake it and it was just funny like when you said i had to pick a poem i was like racking my brain and it just i don't know what it is but there's just something about this poem when i think of poetry it's just like the opening line of this poem just hits me and i'm like ah, i feel like i just kind of want to just do this poem so yeah i'm actually very happy we're talking about this poem i'll explain why in a little bit but okay you want to go ahead and read it Sure, yes. This is Because I Could Not Stop for Death by Emily Dickinson. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess in the ring. We passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. Or rather, he passed us. The dews drew quivering and chill. For only gossamer, my gown. My tippet, only tull. We paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible. The cornice in the ground. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feel shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. Thank you. That's fantastic. I'll tell you why I'm one of the reasons I'm really glad you chose this poem. I've never taught it. So, okay, nice. Yeah, I've taught poetry on and off. And usually, I think my assumption is that students have encountered this at some point before they get to college. And so I'm like, I'll I'll do something a little less known by Emily Dickinson. I was also been a little scared of it. (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds strange, but I, I, I felt for a long time, I didn't have anything I could articulate about it. So but I'm going to turn I mean, I kind of feel the same. It really is like, it's kind of one of those poems, like it does kind of speak for itself in many ways you know like it is i think when especially as a teacher and a professor i think you want to have some sort of like some sort of revelation about something where you feel like "Ah, i'm up here and i'm the genius you know (laughs) i'm the guy and then like with this poem it's basically so perfectly encapsulated in the first two lines that you're sort of like oh okay well i i understand this immediately i get what the theme is i know what we're talking about there's like not a great opportunity to have some kind of like keen insight and also because you know it has been covered and written about so often but i just yeah there's just something about those first two lines they're the most iconic like poetry lines for me in terms of like all the poems i've ever studied ever taught whatever like it's i mean it's perfect right like those first two lines are perfect yeah there's and it's so funny it's i mean i think that people think of emily dickinson as 
you know, this odd loner who never left the house. And yet, this is so funny that he kindly stopped for me. I had put away my labor and my leisure too. She's like weirdly formal and, and the language is all about these manners. And so it's off-putting in a, in a good way. Like there's, it doesn't have that overtone, even though it's mentioning death and immortality, it doesn't have this dull undertone of like sorrow and loss and anything. No. And it's funny, like even reading it, because I didn't know that I was going to read it. And <laughs> and if I had known, I would have picked something that would have made this podcast an hour. I would have read like The Wasteland or something. We could have just been here for <laughs> this, the, the super 10 out, the, the 10 hour super cut of the Book talking 12 book. of the Odyssey. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny how I hadn't really thought about reading it. And you do, you know, because of the the iambic pentameter, you're kind or not even pentameter, I don't think, but the iams, you like read it kind of sing songy, mm-hmm. even though it's like not like it's a sorrowful poem, but it is really hard not to, especially in the first stanza where she rhymes me and immortality, mm-hmm. you kind of see that coming, and then you're like, oh, okay, so this is a sort of like I'm reading all the iams exactly, and it gets this like sing songy tone, but it's not. Yeah, like you said, it's a sorrowful poem, but I think that's kind of almost what gives it sort of this different feel. It doesn't feel like really drudgy, funereal type thing because it's so hard when you're reading it not to just kind of get into the like da 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 da. But then it does like the the rhythm is very much that way as a lot of her poems are. But then it gets weirdly off kilter, like her rhymes like away and civility, ring and sun chill and tool it's just there's always something at the end of her standards that's intentionally and i like is just a little off it's kind of i don't know this is not a good comparison probably but like in a horror movie when there's one of those music boxes playing and it's yes. it's like it starts and then it slows down and the notes change yeah no you're right and like i think too especially because she does the true rhyme in the first stanza, Mm -hmm. then you're immediately like, oh, okay, I get what this is. It's rhyming on two and four. And then you get right to the second one and you're right, like civility, especially as a word, not only does it not rhyme with a way, but just the like for my labor and leisure too, for his civility, like it's just not a great word to say. Like it does put that kind of like stop on it when you're reading it. And then you're like, oh, okay, this is a, it isn't just the like da 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 kind of like it, it is, but it's also she's trying to like screw with you a little bit in that in the way she does it. And and you yeah, you're it's funny because I think like when you're a kid, especially, you'd be reading this like for his civility. Like you <laughs> you just like get in your mind, you're like, I think I need to rhyme this here. I need to pull like an M&M or something and somehow make these words rhyme with the way I pronounce them. Yeah, you know, back when things are in black and white, you know, they just talk that way, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> when you teach one of my favorite things, and this is maybe more of a high school thing, but I love when you teach Shakespeare and you're reading it aloud and you're having the kids read it aloud and it's just a regular English word, but they're so stuck in like this Shakespearean language that they'll just say it super weird. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, no, it's just it's the word we use right now. It's not, a, you know, like even like quivering, you know, like quivering in this poem. I'm just looking at the, you know, they'd be like, and the dews 
drew quivering and you're like no no it's just it's just quivering we just that's just the regular word <laughs> yeah it's always a little unsettling when a 15 year old says again yeah, <laughs> yeah yes totally totally and it's weird like the word choices are so super like immortality civility and eternity are words at the end of stanzas and it's just they're surprising choices like they're they're difficult words and they're kind of you know heavy and portentous at the same but also just like an immortality for his civility they're like you said they're they're kind of surprising words they're the sort of big like i don't know timpani hitting words like yeah telling us this is in, in a way you know essential and important yeah even though like tool is not really but then in the ground is the other one and then yeah like obviously there's the the thought that maybe this poem's not finished uh mm -hmm. with the with the sort of you know with the dash the M dash after eternity. Is it on purpose? Is it because she was trying to illustrate like eternity? It's just this kind of long dash. We don't know, but it is interesting to wonder, like, is this complete? Is there more of this? Because you're right. It does feel like a sudden ending, but then again, maybe that's the point. Yeah, I think so. I like that reading with the, the M dash at the end. It's just ongoing like yes immortality and eternity but i have a question about the last two stanzas and i you know i i always do a little prep by reading a little what people have written about the poem and i'd never really realized this so the last two stanzas we paused before a house that seemed a swelling of the ground the roof was scarcely visible the cornice in the ground since then to centuries and yet feel shorter than the day i first surmised the horse's heads were toward eternity eternite um the, <laughs> part, pardon me for my mispronunciation the first yeah, time yes please um, please get it straight charlie so there are people who read it I, I i've read it that she is in the ground like the last stanza she's in the ground she's waiting for eternity you know time is no longer a thing that she measures in that way but there are people who read it as if she's not as if she's sort of still traveling or still in the carriage because of the we paused before a house yes what do yeah, you think? i don't think i i don't think i've read it as her being in the ground i think because i think of like the horse's heads and then that gets me thinking of like the four horsemen of the apocalypse and mm -hmm. you know i think it does and that's could be not related at all but it just like that's the mental image that i conjure so it does make me think that the way that i always kind of read that last part and again where it, it does sort of feel i think this is why i do feel the poem is finished mm -hmm. is because it seems like i mean I, well i guess maybe not like maybe there is a sense that she was going to actually write about the afterlife or whatever but i think it's to me i sort of read it as like she's confused and i and i think like the grim reaper or the idea of like death having an embodiment is often associated with confusion, right? It's like, oh, I see the Grim Reaper. I'm about to die. What's going to happen to me? Which I think is still, you know, we're confused about what's going to happen when we die. Mm -hmm. But I read it as the sort of like, yeah, she's in the back of the carriage with maybe other people who are bound to die as well. The Grim Reaper's kind of like, you know, steering the, the carriage. And then she has some kind of realization of, Oh, I'm dead. Like that's kind of how I read it. Where I I read it as she hasn't figured out she's dead, or the speak the speaker is like seeing. Oh, the horses' heads are pointed towards eternity. I'm dead. Oh mm -hmm. shit! 
You know, like that to me seems to be the reading that I have always had of it is it kind of goes along with, like I said, that mythos of the Grim Reaper or of death where there is this initial state of confusion. Oh, oh, I'm dead. Oh, damn. The only reason I I kind of or not disagree, but at least I want to I think I'm sticking with her being in the ground or I want to is the last line. It's not the, I first surmise the horse's heads are toward eternity. It's were toward eternity and so that makes me imagine that that this is in a way she's just remembering rather than being in the moment right it is so you think she's like remembering the day she died in this poem yeah that's that's how i read it that you know because she she understands to centuries and yet feels shorter than the day she understands in some way that she's dead i mean it is that moment of revelation in a way but also well i don't know it's because the way it's that paused. We paused before a house. It's not, we stopped. <laughs> they stopped to inter me. It's a yes. strange, it's a strange thing. Like we're very clearly in a carriage for most of the poem. And then at the end it's, it's mysterious. I don't know where we are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, you're right. Like the use of the past tense there is interesting, but I also think in that sense though, you could like, this is all in the past tense, right? It's like past mm-hmm. pause, like, So I still think it could be she's just realizing this now. Like, oh, I realized, but but she's still in the carriage. Like, she's still going towards wherever she's going. She's just realizing, like, oh, they were, they're pointed there. Dang. Mm -hmm. But, but you're right, though. Like, I, I, I think you're, it's interesting to think about the idea that she's in the, she's buried in the ground this whole poem and is like remembering her death day or whatever. I do think that's an interesting idea that i hadn't really thought of to be honest i think i've just like i said always had this picture of this sort of carriage ride towards death and maybe i'm just uh, uh, my assumption is she's being buried because they stop at the cemetery and of course i love that rather than saying grave something i really love about her all all her poems is then she'll just decide not to name something but describe it in a way that's so strange that we have to kind of see it the way she does in this totally new light, a house that seemed a swelling of the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. She's not saying gravesite. She's not saying tomb. It's this, we, have, we sort of see it come together in that weird way. And maybe that's another thing that's creating the uncertainty is that we don't know that that's where she stops. Yeah. And I like the idea that, you know, the gravestone, the swelling of the ground is almost like uh, like an extension of her in a way, kind of saying like, you know, oh, it's I'm dead. I'm down here. And it's sort of like this little piece of me is like swelling up, you know, above the ground. Like, yeah, it is. It is a cool it's a cool thing. And I, I think, yeah, it is. There are different moments in this where the way she's describing it again, I think it it gives it almost a more wistful tone than a, than a somber tone because Mm -hmm. of the way that she's, yeah, it's not just like, and then they put me in the ground and I'm at a cemetery. Like there is just, there's almost like this hopeful, you know, even the way like we pass the school, the school is vibrant. It's not, we passed the school and all the doors were closed and we Mm -hmm. heard the haunting screams of children who used to play (laughs) there or whatever. It's like, no, we passed the school and the children are playing in the ring at recess. And you can like almost hear the children singing as they're playing like ring around the rosy or whatever. There's just a lot of stuff put in here that seems very purposeful to, 
to give the poem a non-somber or, like I said, funereal kind of reading. But you're right. It is wistful. And it's like we passed the school where children strove. Strove is just such a strange word to imagine children striving. At recess in the ring, we passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun. And that's for me, that's where the wistfulness starts. And then or rather he passed us and then the dews grew quivering and chilled. Then the tone at least evokes a little bit of that that sense of of loss. But it's it's just a little bit. And so that wistfulness kind of carries through. Yeah, even even just like wearing a gown, like a tool gown and like you get this sense of or at least for me anyway when I'm reading it I'm I'm thinking of it as a kind of angelic type like gossamer tool like we're thinking of fabrics that are, you know, they're not typically or what I'm not imagining her in this sort of like black deathly dress or whatever. You know, it's it again feels like a oh, I'm kind of like beautiful in passing (laughs) yeah i like that too the the gossamer gown tippet tool it's just there's something very very delicate about it without feeling funereal yeah totally so have you taught this poem before i'm assuming you have yeah i I, i'm trying to remember like i think i have you know it's hard when you're a substitute teacher to kind of keep track of of everything you've ever done but i do think i have taught it before this would be a poem you probably wouldn't teach to a regular regular for lack of a better word english class like this is probably a more like an ap english uh, Mm -hmm. or an ib english so yeah but i have done quite a bit of subbing in both ap and ib so i i believe i have taught it i know for sure i read it in university if i taught it and i probably did i don't have any specific memories of doing that it's funny i this is random but the other day i was listening to some podcast and somebody offhand mentioned being in the gifted program and i thought yeah i was in the gifted program too which basically means your parents went to college and uh <laughs> and, and and if you're in the regular classes they keep all the interesting things away from you like yeah. you don't you don't get to read emily dickinson because we don't think you're smart enough yeah i was in the gifted program as well and in my school district they they made me go to a different school so it was really like uh they had a magnet school program. So we were in school with the regular, quote unquote, regular, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> non-gifted kids. That was one of the things on Block Party. I mean, we've done almost 260 episodes that got like the most attention from people is when I used to talk about how at recess we would play soccer or football or whatever, and we would play gifted versus non-gifted. And that oh was my just God. Like, that was just how we divided the teams. And I, yeah, people always have some kind of weird reaction to that. And like, I just never thought about it in the moment. It just seemed like a fair, like we'd probably usually have about even numbers on both sides. There were good athletes in the gifted program, (laughs) contrary, maybe to popular belief. (laughs) And so, yeah, so it was like this weird, like I never thought of it as weird, but I brought that up on block party once and people had a very strange reaction to that. Like, oh, you you divided it up like that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That is funny. So we went, I went to magnet schools, my brothers and I did. And so in Little Rock, Arkansas, there were a lot of poor schools. And so a lot of them in minority communities were converted to magnet schools so they could get money from the county. Students right. from the county would get bus there. And, you know, I when I was that, a kid that age, I thought, oh, yeah, this, these are fairly integrated schools. And the more I look back, the more it's like the gifted and regular classes were also kind of segregated. 
right. which is right. yeah super so weird yeah. yeah very very weird so especially when you think of it from a like funding perspective right where it's like oh we gotta bring the white kids here so we can get money like it's just even thinking about it on those lines you're like oh i don't but i'm sure like you said at the time you're probably just like oh yeah like uh our school is a bit of a uh you know melting pot kind of situation this is great and then you look back and you're like oh actually shoot <laughs> i don't feel great about that yeah that that was weird that was unsettling <laughs> always unsettling especially when you're from arkansas to look back at your well past. yeah that's maybe the context there is is a little <laughs> bit more fraught <laughs> so one one last thing i wanted to do is share a poem that actually I thought of that I actually teach this poem all the time that I think of now with because I could not stop for death. Have you ever read anything by a Serbian American poet named Charles Simic? No. This this is great. This is sort of the not the person being taken by death, but the poem about death. Death of the person. This is called Eyes Fastened with Pins. How much death works, no one knows what a long day he puts in. The little wife always alone, ironing death's laundry. The beautiful daughters setting death's supper table. The neighbors playing pinochle in the backyard or just sitting on the steps drinking beer. Death, meanwhile, in a strange part of town, looking for someone with a bad cough. But the address is somehow wrong. Even death can't figure it out among all the locked doors. And the rain beginning to fall. Long, windy night ahead. Death with not even a newspaper to cover his head, not even a dime to call the one pining away, undressing slowly, sleepily, and stretching naked on death's side of the bed. Yeah, that's really funny. I like, well, not funny, but well, it's kind of funny. Uh, the the like uh, the the line of like ah, death screws it up a lot is yeah. like a very you know that's really funny and like true right like there's a lot of people where it's like well oh, you're gonna die and then they don't I I agree like kind of a fun counterpoint to to this sort of image of and I think especially like era wise like I'm guessing you said that's a more modern poem right yes yeah yeah I so think it's like 1980. No, 1999. Oh, yeah, perfect. Okay, so, you know, I think that's the other thing, too, is, you know, when you are thinking of Emily Dickinson, you're thinking of the time period she wrote in, you're thinking of this sort of pop culture vision we have of the Grim Reaper or of death or whatever. So it is kind of an interesting, you know, contrast to to that of it seems a little bit more of a modern revolutionary road type uh, death guy who's yeah. like, yeah, I have a cool wife and nice daughters and like this job is hell and whatever you know yeah it's that's uh yeah i liked it it's great it's it's unsettling in the way that the dickinson poem is unsettling in that it's the first time i read it i didn't know exactly how to react i just knew i was hit by it and there are different things that go into it part of most of it i think is not only just death being personified in this way it's like willie loman you know <laughs> yes totally sad, sad sack loser in a way but also it's almost none of it is sentences. It's all like sentence fragments. And so it feels off kilter in, a, yes. in in the way that she kind of does, but totally different means. Anything else you wanted to say about the Dickinson poem before we turn to the silliness? No, I don't think so. I just, like I said off the top, sometimes the classics are classics for a reason. And I genuinely think the opening two lines of the poem are probably the most impactful lines of poetry i've ever read and not even in a like 
it profoundly affected my life, but just like the, the way it's written is just, uh, is perfect. And, uh, yeah, it's a great poem. Yeah. It's so unique and so specific to, to her. So totally, totally. Uh, before we turn to the poetry game, we do have an ad appropriate to your visit. This week's episode is brought to you by the Canadian tourism board, which invites <laughs> Americans to come to Canada to compete in the annual competition for American visitors. They shoot poets, don't they? The premise is simple. Americans are asked to name three Canadian poets. The first to name three wins a bag full of loonies. Up to now, no American competitor has ever named three Canadian poets. They usually name Margaret Atwood and Ann Carson, then get stuck. But every competition must have a winner. So after everyone has named two poets and can't come up with a third, it becomes a dance marathon competition. The last couple standing then compete one-on-one -on -one until one falls unconscious. That's they shoot poets, don't they? Do you? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I'm trying to think if I can name three Canadian poets. Like we're <laughs> Canada is so bad at all that stuff. Like we're yeah. so bad. We like, you know, I work in entertainment as a comedian. We don't have a star system here. Like we're so bad at, at producing famous people. We're really bad at producing artists. Like we're just, we're musicians. <laughs> like we're just bad at everything. Uh, so it is funny. Like you, you said that I'm like, do I know Canadian <laughs> poets? Like obviously, yeah. Atwood came to mind first. Then the second one that came to my mind was Leonard Cohen. Uh, oh. just he, you know, he wrote lo a lot of like books of poetry, but I don't think we think of him as like a traditional poet. And then I'm like, oh, my God, who is it? And then you said Ann Carson. I was like, OK, yeah, I would have got there probably. And But it is like I've read lots of Canadian poets, but we just don't have this sort of like iconic, classic poets where you remember. And I think it's part of the partly that we're a Commonwealth country, too. So we're like, oh, look at all these amazing British poets from the you know yeah. 16 to 1900s. Let's just study them. So was there any studying of Canadian literature for your degree or was it just English literature, American literature? Yeah, I went to UBC, uh, the University of British Columbia, which is a very good and well-regarded school. But it is the English degree was very uh, loose, like you could really just kind of take sort of whatever you wanted. But you there was a Canadian education requirement or sorry, a Canadian literature uh, requirement. And so I took I think you had to take two courses that were focused on Canadian literature. And I took one that was sex in Canadian literature. And it was great because the, the teacher of the class was and this is, you know, probably the year 2000 or 2001. Or no, sorry, sorry. I graduated in 2003 from high school. Sorry. So like 2004, 2005. And the teacher was like a very flamboyant gay man, which in 2005, that was a little bit of a dip for me coming from a small town. That was a little bit of a like, okay. And the he had, as, as so often professors do, he had edited the anthology that we uh, studied in the class. And the anthology was called Sexing the Maple. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a pretty great title for it. And yeah, we studied a lot about sex in Canadian literature. It had a very heavy Marshall McLuhan focus. And wow. uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very cool class. I feel like I learned a lot other than what the names of the poets were of the poets that we read. <laughs> yeah, I have classes like that where I don't remember any of the content, but I could tell you a million things about the teachers and the other people in the class. 100%. There was a girl in that class that uh, this was in the very early days of Facebook, where mm -hmm. you had to have a university email address to get on Facebook. 
And I remember when it first came to UBC and it was this big thing. And back in the day, because it was university focused, you could put your classes into Facebook. So you would say like, okay, I'm taking oh, this. Right. Yes. It's like, oh, I'm taking this class in this section or whatever. And then you could see all the other people in your class. So it was actually a great way to meet girls because you'd see <laughs> them in your class. You'd be like, oh, that's a hot girl I've identified from across the room. I would like to sit beside her. Uh, maybe I'll add her as a friend or whatever. So I remember there was this girl in that Sexing the Maple class that I thought was very cute. And uh, we ended up talking on Facebook quite a bit and we agreed to sit together. And then uh, it was the only time in history that I she had a just the most crazy voice I've ever heard where it, it immediately turned me off. I don't know what it was, but it was just like she just had this. And that, that's like what I remember most about that class is like it's probably the <laughs> only time in history I have went from like, oh, this girl's really cute to like, no, I'm not interested because of her voice, which is I realize petty and whatever. But that's what I remember about sexing the people. <laughs> <laughs> Education's strange. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> Speaking of education, John Cullen, trivia buff, Jeopardy fan. Are you ready to play a game? Let's play a game, baby. All right. Today we're playing a game I'm calling Who Didn't Start the Fire? So I assume that you and most listeners are familiar with Billy Joel's 1989 hit, We Didn't Start the Fire. I am familiar, yes. So I assume that you, but I imagine, well, I I hope for their sake, a lot of listeners have not heard of or heard the Fallout Boy remake of We Didn't Start the Fire. I think I have heard it. I read the lyrics and then heard it by accident. And I have to say, I'm going to read just the first little verse here so people can get a taste of it. Read the lyrics. Forget about it. Listen to it later, because the ridiculousness of the lyrics is even better when you hear them and you're paying attention. So here are the opening lyrics. Should I sing these? Captain Planet, Arab Spring, L.A. Riots, Rodney King, Deep Fakes, Earthquakes, Iceland Volcano, Oklahoma. Iceland Volcano. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You can tell that that was written in the two months that that was a thing that we yep. cared about. Oklahoma City bomb, Kurt Cobain, Pokemon, Tiger Woods, MySpace, Monsanto GMOs. Oh, I got the no. rhythm there on the long thing, but I got to say Oklahoma City bomb to Kurt Cobain to Pokemon. That's chef's kiss. That's pretty genius. Yeah. I also love that they're they're really going for. And I know that the Billy Joel version did this a little bit, too, but just like the juxtaposition of Captain Planet and Rodney King, mm -hmm. like they're sitting down to write the lyrics. They're like, OK, so what happened in the 90s? OK, there's these Arab Spring. Like he's like, <laughs> oh, he's a horrible events. Oh, well, Captain Planet was sick, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is when I finally uh, succumb to dementia. These are going to be this is like my stream of consciousness is just remembering. Oh, yeah, the Oklahoma City bombing, Kurt Cobain, Pokemon. Yeah, I recommend, as I said, everybody should read the lyrics. But did you know that Billy Joel was writing a long tradition of bards and poets in this game? Who didn't start the fire? I'm going to read you the very totally real lyrics from previous versions of We Didn't Start the Fire, and you'll tell me who you think wrote it. Okay. And I will I will sing this despite my obviously not. So these voice. are these are uh I'm I'm trying to name musicians here, or these are poets. These are poets. Okay. Yeah. So number one, I met a little cottage girl, tin turn abbeys, windowsills, lonely clouds, untrodden ways, Samuel Coleridge. Hey, Tin Turn Abbey was Wordsworth? 
That is Wordsworth. One for one. Okay, good. I'm glad I got one point on the board. When you said it was going to be poets, I was like, oh boy, I could be in some trouble here. Okay. Phew, yeah, right. the I'm I'm still figuring out like the the right <laughs> the right difficulty level. Difficulty, By the way, yeah. as a bonus, he has a perfect title for the world is too much with us. Okay, number two. <laughs> Arise and go to Innis Free. I've met them at the close of day. Those I fight, I do not hate no country for old men. Oh, yeah. Innis Free. Oh. No Country for Old Men is Cormac McCarthy, but he is not a poet. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, who was Innis Free? Uh, is it Shelley? No, it's W.B. Yeats. Yeats. Yeah. Uh, the No Country for Old Men. Not even the right time. Not even the right time. <laughs> well, you know, it's the right part of the world, sort of. I mean, yes, just kind well, of generally. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sort of. But in another way, Yeats would be very upset if he heard you say that. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's. He can't hear us. They don't have podcasts in heaven. <laughs> that's that's true. Is Yates in heaven? It's a great question. Yeah, we'll say so. All right, number three. Death is proud you ravish me, a little world man cunningly. Suck our blood, you little flea the canonization. I can always sing again if you'd like. Uh, what was the first line again? Uh, death is proud you ravish me. Death is proud. Uh, death be not proud. Oh, God. This is like, I should have studied before this. <laughs> you didn't know you were going to read the poem. You didn't know that the. I did. I, well, no, you did hard. tell me about the game. You did tell me about the game. It's on me. It's on me for not studying. Death be not proud. Oh, God. It's not Dylan Thomas, is it? No, it's John Dunn. But I know I see why you got to Dylan Thomas. That's the yes, I know, and I Dunn was also in my mind because we yeah. studied. We did actually in IB English twelve. I don't know. Do you know what IB is? It's International Baccalaureate, but I don't actually know what that means. Yeah. So basically, what it means is I'll try to say it quickly. But basically, there's two streams. There's the diploma and the certificate. So the diploma starts in grade 11 and you have to take a or 11th grade for your American listeners. Uh, <laughs> I know they're so when I say grade 11, they're like, what is he talking about? So, yeah. So what it is, is it's a um, uh, the diploma basically is a set schedule of classes that you take in grade 11 and grade 12. And then the certificate is you can just pick and choose what classes to take. Okay. And then they have standard level and higher level. So the diploma you take standard level for the classes you're not very good at. So like if you were doing a humanities diploma, then you would probably do like biology standard level, math standard level, whatever. And then you would do like English history, geography, higher level. And then what it is, is when you take the higher level courses, they go all year in grade 12. And if you get a certain score on the IB exams, you get first year credit at university. Okay. So essentially the first in my school was semestered two semesters. So the first semester was supposed to be the equivalent of grade 12 English. And the second semester was the equivalent of university, first year university English. Gotcha. And then for whatever reason, my teacher of higher level English, we did a bunch of different books and plays. And then instead of doing like a survey of poetry, we just studied John Donne. So I should have got that, <laughs> but I really checked out. We did poetry last and our IB exams are already over. You do them in like April. So oh, okay. I was just like, I'm, I, my mind was checked out, but yes, totally. 
Well, I feel like I've said this before, but I kind of feel, get to feel like Alex Trebek doing the games. And I just wish sometimes, you know, he would have said, I didn't know that. <laughs> he just looks <laughs> as if he has all this all this knowledge at his disposal. And Well, it's funny with Ken hosting now because you do genuinely think he knows them all. Yeah. So it's even funnier with Ken, like because he actually had one the other game where I was so surprised because Alex never did this, but there was a triple stumper, which is when none of the contestants get it right. And then Ken actually said, yeah, I didn't know that one either. It's blank. And it was like sort of an, <laughs> an acknowledgement of like, nah, I, I know most of these. And I was surprised by this question because I didn't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be great if sometimes someone gets the right answer and Trebek says, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I see how you got there. That's yeah, good. Yeah. 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 All right, I have two more for you. Okay. Um, and uh, I'll one is 20th century, and then the last one is 19th century. So number okay. four. Uh, now I'm going to skip number four because I tried singing it earlier and it doesn't fit. Just one more then. Okay. 19th century. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was just looking at it and realizing I've been singing these. Uh, and I do have part of the chorus here for you. Okay. Glory be for dappled things, a warm breast and wild bright wings, the mastery of the thing you mourn for, Margaret. Kingfishers catching fire. <laughs> I've just created this so I can be talking to somebody else instead of talking to myself at home. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Kingfisher. Is that Keats? No, that is Gerard Manley Hopkins. Oh, I would have never got that. I think that I'm pulling from so many disparate things, like different different poets that poems that it's just like it's it's a weird mishmash. So John, whatever. Thank I got you. one. I was happy to get one. It's better than several people have done, and it's better than I would have done on most of these. So you're on the leaderboard. Yes. Oh, Canada. You would get to hear that with your medal. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, anything you would like to plug? Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is uh, this has been a fun experience. I feel like I got to sound mildly intelligent on a podcast as opposed to the uh the alternative which is nice uh but you were <laughs> you were very nice uh in the plugs off the top but yes i have a podcast called blocked party uh which is where myself and stefan heck who you may know from the internet as at boring as heck on twitter uh we have a guest on every week to talk about a time they got blocked on social media uh, it's a very fun show. It's been going for almost five years. We've had some great guests on the show. Tony Hawk, Ike Barinholtz, uh, Nikki Glazer, Jamel Hill. Lots of great guests. I think we've had we we had a poet on too, right? Who that who, That is why I thought of you. You had a Canadian poet on whose name you can't remember as you're trying to list Canadian poets. Who the hell was the Canadian poet we had on? I forgot to check his name. <laughs> it was it was a while back oh oh, I, oh shane koizan of course of yes. course how could i forget shane koizan canada's finest slam poet uh yeah shane um, oh yeah he's amazing if you don't know shane check out his work shane koizan incredible incredible performer and poet uh so yeah you're right i should have got that uh <laughs> when i was thinking of three canadian poets uh my friend shane uh i'll tag uh, yeah. him in this even though i don't know him so he can please be angry yeah and you. if you if you're not familiar <laughs> with his work he's so great and uh and really like i know that teaching slam poetry is what it is but he's a really great example of a, of a fantastic slam poet um so yeah anyway uh block party it's at block party pod you can find it wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, you know, a lot of people do say new metal is poetry. And so if you are one of those people, I have a <laughs> podcast called the POD cast uh, with Brian Quinby. We review a classic new metal album every month. If you don't know what new metal is, 
think like corn, Limbiscuit, Deftones, that kind of late 90s, early aughts rock phase. Uh, it's super fun. And then, yeah, if you want to check out me and my comedy, uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Cullen the Comic. And as you said, I have a couple albums out. They're available wherever you get your music. Thank you. And what is I did it all for the Nookie, if not a Shakespearean sonnet in contemporary language? No question. Absolutely. Yeah, it is pretty much it's it's basically the it's basically an unpublished love sonnet by Shakespeare. So. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not in the folio. Well, thanks. How do everybody. I love thee. Let me count the ways, which is not Shakespearean, <laughs> but also it is kind of it's like a combo of Shakespeare and uh, and Bear Browning. So exactly well thanks everybody for listening have a great day go read some poems pet some dogs and support striking workers wherever you find them bye